tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boostbytaxday to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. It's December 5th. I'm Brian Dean Wright, former CIA operations officer, and this is The Wright Report. Hey, good day to you, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Right Report, your daily news podcast. I've got four briefs for you this morning that are shaping America and the world. First up, a mystery out of Israel. Law enforcement officers there are investigating whether stock traders in that country knew that the October 7th terror attacks would likely happen. I'll explain what we know. Second, an update to our battle for the Pacific. A fight on Capitol Hill about money has held up critical payments to some very important island partners of ours, and China is looking to swoop in. Third, an Arab leader got himself into some hot water by suggesting that climate change isn't necessarily real. And he said that at a climate change conference. Fourth, a former U.S. diplomat was arrested on Friday for spying for Cuba. We're going to talk about how the FBI probably found him, how the Cubans managed to recruit him, and the dangers I think that this case shows for America. Before we begin today, a quick admin note. Yesterday's episode had a very odd, incorrect description of the episode for about six hours or so before it was corrected. So if you looked at that and you thought, eh, that sounds weird, and you skipped it, well, go back and take a listen. It was a good episode. At any rate, let's get to that top story of the morning. A mystery out of Israel to talk about. Stock traders in that country appear to have had advanced knowledge that a terror attack was coming on or about October 7th. And if this allegation is proven to be true, that would be shocking. And it would raise a host of questions about how they knew, who told them, and why the attacks weren't stopped. So here's what we know this morning based on research and reporting from Reuters News Service. In the days leading up to the October 7th attacks, stock traders on the Tel Aviv Stock Exchange began to dramatically increase their short positions. For folks unaware, that means that they were betting or speculating that stock prices or the market would go down and they would profit off that decline. Now, in and of itself, this short selling isn't necessarily abnormal. People short stocks and markets all the time. But here's what's very unusual. On October 2nd, short selling started to suddenly and significantly spike on the Tel Aviv Stock Exchange. Then just before the attacks, short positions increased even further, which data showed to be exceptionally unusual for that stock market. As just one example, Israel's largest bank had millions of shares that were shorted in the, the week or so prior to the attacks, and that yielded profits of $862 million for those short investors. This information, by the way, was uh, compiled by researchers at New York University and Columbia University, and it led them to conclude that this pattern suggests that, quote, traders were informed about the coming attacks and profited from these tragic events, end quote. For what it's worth, Israel's security authority says that they are aware of this research and the matter. They are investigating it. Additionally, Israeli law enforcement says that they are involved but are refusing additional comment. So those are the scarce details this morning on this very odd development out of the Middle East. 
let me pivot now to my analysis and opinion. So back on October 9th and again throughout that month, I shared with you that the attacks in Israel were shocking in no small part because there are so many countries with spies crawling all over that region, whether that be with humans or signal intelligence and those platforms that scoop up emails and phone calls and other electronic intel. And that is why a lot of folks like me were pretty confounded that everybody missed these pending terror attacks. It just seemed impossible. Well, perhaps not everybody missed it. And here are three likely scenarios that I think help explain perhaps what happened with these stock market trades. At first, perhaps Arab Intel services knew a lot more than they are admitting, and they leaked plans of the attack to some short sellers who profited from it, and they probably took a little bit of a cut. Second, it is also possible that Hamas and its leaders, the billionaires in most cases, leaked some information to some trusted associates that then went to the stock exchange and traded these short trades on their behalf. And now all of them are a lot richer. For what it's worth, this is my personal low confidence guess for what probably happened. Finally, there's also been a theory that I should tell you about. It's really, frankly, a conspiracy theory that the Israeli government was somehow purposefully negligent in allowing Hamas to actually attack their country so they could uh, clear out the Gaza Strip or accomplish some foreign policy. I don't buy that at all, but I have heard this repeated by, I'm sorry to say, some conservative commentators. And what I've tried to tell those folks is that actually the Israeli government did have some low confidence intelligence in the months prior to the attacks that something big was coming, But those warnings mostly came from junior intel and military officers who were largely dismissed by more senior officers. So I I just don't buy that there was some grand Israeli conspiracy here. I think it's just a case of uh, some senior folks who ignored the junior folks. Regardless, this is worth keeping our eyes on, folks, and I will. Because if these reports turn out to be true and Israeli investigators discover some evidence of it, that could be very important to understanding how Hamas pulled off this attack and whether it could have been stopped, and who profited from it. More to come. Meanwhile, we now pivot to our second report of the morning with an update on our battle for the Pacific. That's our focus on the fight between the U.S. and China for influence and supremacy. It's a series that we started back on May 23rd. Now, during that first episode, I introduced you to something called a COFA. It's a special agreement between the United States and three island nations called Palau, Micronesia, and the Marshall Islands. So those COFAs, or those agreements, were first signed over 40 years ago with this basic understanding. The islands would give America exclusive control over their foreign policies, plus some military basing rights. In exchange, we would give them a whole bunch of cash, plus some other benefits, but cash was the big one. Well, the White House just renegotiated those agreements over the past three or four months, totaling about $7 billion over the next 20 years. But there was a catch. State Department and its negotiators got everybody to sign on the dotted line for those COFAs, except for Congress. And that takes us to the news. Members of the House, mostly Republicans, are balking at the $7 billion price tag, saying that we have to cut $7 billion from somewhere else if we really want to fund these COFAs. So far, nobody has come up with the cuts, which are also called offsets. And that's making leaders of those island countries very anxious this morning with the former president of Micronesia warning that it opens the door for China to swoop in. As he explained, China has already been trying to do that in his country. 
He showed evidence that uh, the Chinese have been bribing or otherwise trying to work with local businessmen and politicians to undermine that COFA and kick us out. And he says and warns that if Congress doesn't get their act together, the COFA countries are going to start falling like dominoes to China. As he pointed out and helped explain, uh, U.S. aid for the Marshall Islands is about 70% of their GDP. Meanwhile, for his country, Micronesia, it's about 40% of their annual revenue. Finally, the country of Palau, they are so short of cash that they might not be able to make a debt payment that is scheduled for January 1st. So those are the latest facts and data in our battle for the Pacific, with three countries getting a little bit anxious this morning. Let me pivot now to my analysis and opinion. This debate about the COFAs is really caught up in our much bigger fight about American spending and America, frankly, going broke. As listeners know, we are issuing record debt to cover our annual deficits and making record interest payments on a record $33 trillion national debt. So, yes, I think it's pretty fair for Congress to ask some tough questions and prioritize. So let me ask you, what should those funding priorities be? Should we give those island nations $7 billion or so to, say, prevent China from getting closer to Hawaii and the West Coast? Or is it more important to give $61 billion to the Ukrainians? Or maybe the priority is Mr. Biden's climate change programs, which, by the way, are now estimated to cost you all $1.2 trillion. Finally, what about the U.S. border? Seems like uh, record numbers of illegal migrants would call for a record amount of money and detention to stop all of that. And that's why, if you recall, my previous counsel to you on this issue about prioritization has been this. We ought to prioritize our spending on America's greatest threats. And the first, frankly, is to secure the border. The second is to reestablish law and order in our cities, especially. And third, it's to stop the Chinese threat. And that would certainly include foreign aid to these small island nations, at least in my view. But as ever, reasonable people can disagree on this. It's just my advice to you this morning as a former intel officer. And that would be my counsel to Congress, by the way, for those folks on Capitol Hill who are listening this morning. Take it or leave it. Finally, a climate oopsie to tell you about with a quick refresh of our memories from last Thursday. I told you about the global climate change gathering in the Middle East that's sponsored by the United Nations called COP28. A lot of the world leaders are gathered there over the next week or so. The president of this year's gathering is a guy named Sultan Ahmed al-Jabr. He's a senior government official with the United Arab Emirates, or UAE. Well, a couple weeks ago, he was on a video chat, and he was being challenged by a leader of a, a feminist movement that is trying to stop climate change. And she was demanding that fossil fuels be phased out. And she told this Arab fellow and his government that they must lead the way. To which he said from a video that was released on Sunday, quote, there is no science out there or no scenario out there that says that the phase out of fossil fuels is what's going to achieve our climate goals. Show me a roadmap for a phase out of fossil fuels that will allow for sustainable development unless you want to take the world back into caves, end quote. The Arab official went on to say that eventually, sure, fossil fuels will be phased out. He called it essential, actually, but not for a while. Well, as you would imagine, that was not well received by the climate change folks in the, the Middle East this morning. The bottom line is that the United Nations conference there and all those folks are not a happy place and nor a happy group of people. So those are the facts and data this morning about this very brief update. Let me offer you my analysis and opinion for why I'm bringing this to you. So about a year ago, 
Toyota's then president, was blasted by climate change activists and some fellow car makers for having the audacity to suggest that perhaps electric vehicles were not the way to go. Instead, he said that it was better for the industry to stretch limited battery resources to make hybrids. Plus, he said that consumers like those cars better anyway. And to his critics, who certainly blasted him for this view, said this, the silent majority of car makers is wondering whether EVs are really okay to have as a, a single option, but they think it's a popular trend, so they can't speak out loudly, end quote. But Mr. Toyota did. Right? Forget the critics, he said. It turns out, by the way, he was right. EV sales in the United States are hitting a wall, while sales of hybrids are way up. And this is really fundamentally about speaking truth to power. And that is precisely what I would say that this Arab official did on video just a couple weeks ago. He spoke out against a trend using logic and reason. He said that unless we want to put humanity back in caves, we're going to need fossil fuels moving forward. And he was right. But for that honesty, he was skewered. But like Mr. Toyota, he pushed forward and he's going to be right. The point is this. Sometimes good leadership comes with a price. People might not like you for it or for your honesty, but it is better to lead, I think, with courage and facts than be celebrated by a global cabal of a bunch of charlatans and fools. With that, let's take our first break of the morning. For subscribers listening at rightreport.substack.com, thank you. Meanwhile, for my other loyal listeners, hearing me, of course, on your favorite podcast platforms, I sure appreciate you too. We'll be right back. My friends, for the past few months, you have heard me talk about Jace Medical. It's the company that provides you medication for emergency use like antibiotics. Also, they get you backup prescriptions for things like cholesterol, diabetes, and blood pressure. And here's why I love Jace Medical so much. If you are a farming or a ranching family or you live in the back 40, it is pretty tough to get a hold of a doctor, to travel to the appointment, get the prescription, you fill it, and so forth. But with Jace Medical, all you have to do is fill out a simple online form and in some cases have a quick call with one of their board certified physicians. And then you get the medication right in the mail. You also get ongoing care from Jace physicians about any treatment related questions, which is fantastic. In other words, folks, you get peace of mind, you get convenience, and you get an emergency supply of medicines no matter where you are. And that is great for a lot of people, rural families, folks who are traveling, or those of us who might be a little bit anxious these days about our unpredictable world, and you might prefer to have an emergency supply of medicines on hand. And that's kind of smart. So do what I've done. Go to jacemedical.com. That's J-A-S-E medical.com. Enter that promo code right W. R-I-G-H-T is the spelling. And when you do, you will get a right report discount. Again, my friends, go to jacemedical.com, promo code right, and get the supply of medicines you need, folks, shipped straight to your door. Ladies and gentlemen, we all know that good meals equal a good, healthy body. And that's why I continue to tell you about Factormeals.com. They're the folks that deliver fresh, never-frozen meals right to your doorstep. All you do is open the box, and within two minutes of heating, they are ready to enjoy. And... 
boy, do you have a lot to enjoy. You've got 35 different meal options to choose from every week, from things like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, even vegetarian foods, if that's your cup of tea. And we are talking about good food for breakfast, lunch, dinner, plus grab-and-go snacks and cold-pressed juices, shakes, and smoothies. By the way, I've got two recommendations for you. Their pork chops are top shelf, and I also love the mango smoothies. So there you go. But seriously, folks, I love Factor Meals. They are the perfect option for either very busy folks like me or retired folks who want good, healthy meals but don't want the fuss of cooking. So support the folks who support me and get Factor Meals right now at 50% off. Yeah. So here's how you do it. Go to factormeals.com slash right five zero. That's W-R-I-G-H-T five zero and get 50% off. Yes, that's code right five zero at factorymeals.com slash right five zero and get your 50% off. But I'll tell you, more importantly, you are going to get a meal service, my friends, that is good for your body and great for your taste buds. I promise. Welcome back to The Right Report. Let's continue with our briefs this morning with a pivot towards news about spies. A former U.S. ambassador was arrested on Friday and arraigned yesterday for being a secret Cuban spy. His name is Victor Manuel Roca. He's a 73-year-old man from Miami, and he is alleged to have began his clandestine career with Havana all the way back to at least 1981. And if true, that would make Mr. Roca one of, if not the longest serving spies in known U.S. history. And this case, I got to tell you, it is so fascinating. For folks who have never worked at the CIA or an in intel service, I think it helps us understand the world of espionage and spycraft just a little bit better. So I'm going to give you the details of this very interesting case. And we are going to explore some questions like, why would someone agree to become a spy? And... How did the FBI exactly find him? And finally, what does this case tell us about America's security? Right? Do we have other spies like Mr. Roca in our midst? Well, to answer those questions, let's dive into the world of smoke and mirrors this morning. Come with me back to the dark days of the Cold War, when Mr. Roca first agreed to become a Cuban spy. This case starts in probably the year 1971, 10 years before Mr. Roca eventually became a U.S. citizen and then a State Department diplomat. In that year of 1971, he was 23 years of age, born and raised in the country of Colombia. And that's important to remember. Foreign intel services like to recruit people who might have, shall we say, questionable loyalties. Perhaps they love their home countries a little bit more than the countries that they later adopt. And that's the case here. We now know that Mr. Roca secretly hated America. He told an undercover FBI officer that the U.S. is evil. He said that we are the enemy. Conversely, by the way, he called his Cuban friends and handlers his comrades. He spoke of Fidel Castro as El Comandante. But the point is this. In 1971, he had that hatred in his heart for America, and he traveled to the country of Chile, which at the time was led by a Marxist president by the name of Salvador Allende. Now, while in this country of Chile, Mr. Roca apparently met a Cuban intel officer. We don't have details yet on what that exchange was all about or how exactly they met, but clearly Mr. Roca was recruited in that country based on the indictment anyway. But it begs the question, why did he do this at such a young age? And why did the Cubans choose him to, to recruit him of all people? 
Well, we don't have exact details this morning, but we do know, again, that he hated America and he loved communism, and that was great for the Cubans, perhaps just enough. Second, though, it appears that the Cubans directed him to do something special, to burrow himself inside the United States government, to become a mole, to slowly, over time, work his way as high as he could within the U.S. government. And so he did. First, Mr. Roca became a U.S. citizen in 1978. He then attended various U.S. universities like Harvard, Yale, and Georgetown, all to network and burnish his academic credentials. Second, he adopted what he called a conservative right-wing persona. That was his cover, a, a fake personality that he would use then for the rest of his life to make people believe, especially during the Cold War, that he was pro-America and anti-communist. And apparently, by the way, this cover was quite good. A former colleague of his was interviewed by the Miami Herald, and this guy said that he was shocked because he knew Roca to be very conservative and he hated the Communist Party and the regime. Third, with this academic background and this conservative, shall we say, bona fides in hand of hating the communists, he got a job with the U.S. State Department as a diplomat. By the mid-1980s, he got a plum position as one of the most senior political officers at the U.S. Embassy in Mexico City. Then he was the deputy chief of mission at the U.S. Embassy in the Dominican Republic. And here's the worst part. He was then on President Bill Clinton's National Security Council with special responsibility for, amongst other things, Cuba. He then left Washington, D.C., and he went on island serving in Havana for our what's called interest section, sort of like an embassy. He then had subsequent tours in Argentina and then as ambassador to Bolivia in 2002. In other words, folks, from the years 1981 to the year 2002, he spied for Cuba. 20 years of espionage with access to people and intelligence and policy. And then he retired from government service. But he wasn't done. He then left the State Department and started working as a Cuba advisor to the U.S. military. He worked for the Southern Command in Florida, which has responsibility for Cuba. He did that until the year 2012. So let's pause there, because while it is true that according to the Department of Justice, he continued to spy for Cuba for the next five years or so, his best years of espionage were probably behind him. So in other words, for 30 years, he successfully spied for Cuba in both our State Department and within our military. So with that in mind, let's do a thought experiment. Let's imagine this morning that we are on a damage assessment team. We are working with the FBI, the CIA, NSA, and others. And our chore is to figure out how much damage this guy has done, whether that be our intel networks, our policies, or our personnel. And so as we sit down and talk with each other, let's start with this question. What did Mr. Roca likely do for the Cubans? What did he probably give them? Well, there are three things that give us a sense, I think, of what it could have included. First... He had physical access to various U.S. embassies and military bases, and that means he had intimate details about whew, security procedures, badges, floor layouts, and communication systems, and a personnel roster. And with that roster, by the way, he almost certainly gave the Cubans an assessment of each and every person that he ever interacted with. And that's important because the Cubans could then use that information for, say, future blackmail efforts or to recruit people. Second, Mr. Roca also had access to profoundly sensitive information, especially in those roles in Havana and the National Security Council. And that would include at least secret, if not top secret information, and probably 
something called sensitive compartmented information, or SCI. And that stuff would give the Cubans a boatload of critical information, perhaps even a chance to unravel our networks of spies inside Havana. The Cubans uh, probably also from this Roca fellow got a sense of our gaps of information, the, the things that we didn't know about Castro or his regime, but we really wanted to. And with that knowledge of our gaps, they could feed us misinformation, disinformation, or even dangle some double agents in front of us to rot out our intel networks from the inside out. Third, Mr. Roca could have probably shaped or did shape or change U.S. policy to make things better for the communist regime, or maybe just a little less bad. And that certainly would have been the case for when he was on Bill Clinton's National Security Council. And so, too, when he was down in Florida with the U.S. military at that Southern Command. So those are the general areas of damage assessment that I think the FBI and its teams are considering this morning, if we were a part of it. But the folks in Washington, D.C., they are not the only ones operating a damage assessment team this morning. Yes, Havana, they are almost certainly doing the same thing. They are probably asking themselves, how did this happen? How was he discovered? And that is a great mystery. Now, I hope they never figure it out. But here are a few possibilities that, frankly, all intel services immediately gravitate towards when this kind of crisis happens. First, he told someone, and here's why that's possible. Spies like Mr. Roca sometimes brag or have a need to feel important. So perhaps he told a friend or a family member that he thought he could trust, but he was wrong, and they tattled on him. Second, maybe we have our own spy in Cuba this morning, and that person is telling us about Mr. Roca and other Cuban spies like Roca that are burrowed right now in Washington, D.C., Third, it's possible that there was a problem with the communication systems that the Cubans were using to arrange meetings with Mr. Roca, and those systems were discovered either by people like the FBI or the NSA. Although I will say that is less likely in this case because Mr. Roca himself said that he hadn't been to Havana since the year 2016, and that means that he was likely terminated as an agent back then and put on ice, as it's called, in other words, retired until they needed him again. Regardless of which of those best explains how the FBI learned of Mr. Roca, we know that this guy was itching to get back into the spy game when he was asked by the undercover FBI agent about whether or not he was still committed to the communist cause. He got very angry. Here's what he said, quote, I am angry because that question that was asked, that's like questioning my manhood. It's like you want me to drop my pants and show you if I still have testicles, end quote. So, yes, Mr. Roca was still very dedicated to the communist cause. And that suggests that his motivation for spying was about ideology, to advance communism and to destroy America. So those are the latest facts and data as we know them this morning, with much more to come on this very intriguing case. Two pieces of quick analysis and opinion to offer you. First, the Cubans are one of the best intel services out there in the world, sadly. And this case is but one of the reasons for why that is true. If you have a chance, boy, read the 20-page indictment that is in the transcripts. It is so good, at least from a spycraft perspective. It's full of surveillance detection routes and secret code words and what it's ultimately like to be a spy. Second, I think that this is, frankly, a sad reminder that America almost certainly has other spies in our midst, just like this Roca guy because he was motivated by ideology, a hatred of America. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people who hate America these days, including in our government. 
And that's why I am going to make a prediction for you. Over the next 10 years, I think we are going to learn of at least five more major cases of very important Americans who are spying for at least the Chinese, but probably also the Russians and the Iranians. And they are going to be traitors who are inside the FBI, the CIA, the Pentagon, and I would imagine a couple congressmen and a senator to boot. Although the latter uh, prediction about the Senate, it's not much of a prediction. New Jersey's senior Senator Bob Menendez is currently accused of spying for the Egyptian government. I should note, though, he denies the charges. But my point is this. A sad number of Americans hate America, including people like Mr. Roca. And whether they spy for cash or for ideology, they're going to sell us out. And that will make conducting secret negotiations or foreign policy, especially covert action, very, very tough. And that will make America ultimately weaker. Now, the good news is that there are solutions to this problem, like creating special teams of what I might call clandestine untouchables, full of people like Elliot Ness from the old days. And those teams would be discreetly responsible for addressing major threats out of places like China, Russia, and Iran. So that would be my counsel to the next president, create those special teams. Otherwise, I fear that we are going to have more people like Victor Manuel Roca, who will sell us out and ultimately, folks, destroy this nation. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we conclude your morning brief. As always, I will see you tomorrow, God willing. Until then, I leave you with the creed of every good spy and every wise American. They're the words from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 32. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Good day.